are we? We're in yeah. fan fiction. Let's go. <laughs> Jesus fan fiction. I didn't say that on Sunday. <laughs> All right, Jason. Well, go, go ahead and get us started. Well, welcome back to the Bad Calvinist Podcast. Glad that you're tuning in today. I'm Jason Link, the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Chillicothe, Ohio, and joined, as always, by my two compatriots, podcasters, fellow friends, and pastors, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Joel Esla, I'm the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. And Gray Marshall, the pastor of the co-pastor. Uh-oh. There it is. <laughs> there it is again. There it is that. again. Gray, Gray, Gray. The co-pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Wyoming in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I serve alongside my wife, my fellow co-pastor. I'm glad you clarified that for us and for our listeners here. Um, another podcast, another interesting topic, maybe a uh, a topic that's foreign to some, maybe a topic that will um, reaffirm or, or affirm some things for others, um, more of a topical topic. Uh, Gray, you preached a sermon uh, a few weeks back now. Um, alongside of, of your wife there, co-pastor, kind of looking at the identity of God. That's right. And um, you took up the topic of God as mother. Yeah, God as mother. So this was part of a much longer series entitled, What is God Like? And we were trying to intentionally expand our language around God. Um, How do we expand that language as opposed to having a very limited subset? Can we look beyond just our normal, comfortable terms and kind of push the envelope a little bit? So I'll be honest with you, I chose the Sunday in which probably pushed the envelope the most, (laughs) which is God as Mother. Um, and, and I've done a little bit of research on this, but I spent some time for this sermon trying to dig into uh, where the biblical imagery of God as mother exists. Um, and to be clear with our listeners uh, today, uh, there is no place in the Bible where God is directly called mother. That, that really doesn't happen in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, it doesn't happen in the New Testament either. However, if you look, and you need to look, and I encourage you to look, you will find a large diversity of maternal imagery used towards God. So, in the sense of uh, motherly traits or motherly uh, ideas that are attached to how God loves God's people. Um, and I started with, uh, in, in the uh, sermon that I preached, the scripture I used was from Isaiah. And I'm going to read a couple of these just to kind of get a flavor of what we're talking about. Um, Isaiah 46, 3 through 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb... Even to your old age, I am he. Even when you turn gray, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. 
And then Isaiah 66. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And so what we get here is clearly some feminine imagery attached to God, particularly maternal aspects uh, of how God relates to God's people. Um, And I just find it really interesting that throughout our history as church people, um, as folks who have committed ourselves to following God, reading Scripture, understanding Scripture, that it seems that this is a place in which we have a massive gap that exists within our understanding of how God works. Um, I don't know why. I don't have a full understanding of why. I have some guesses at why we don't use this imagery as often as we should. Uh, But we don't. Um, And yet it it is in the Bible. So I would encourage you both. I'm interested in... um, your understanding of, of maternal language, was this something that you had awareness of growing up? I, I will say in my home church, my pastor was pretty good about using genderless uh, nouns to describe God, describing the way God acted, you know, creator, sustainer, redeemer, all these kind of terms that we use, and, and, and tended to do that, but never would, I think, during my growing up in the Presbyterian church, use directly maternal language towards God. Is that, was that y'all's experience as well? I think for me, yes. Um, uh, I don't remember female language for God, certainly not playing a major role. Maybe once or two, nothing sticks out in my head. Um, But by the same token, um, I did not grow up in a church where prayers started Father God. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's yep. the, right. uh, at some level, the other side of this token, if you will, the other side of the coin. Um, you know, such heavily male language for God. Yep. Certainly, we pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Yes, we pray the Lord's Prayer, but it wasn't. It wasn't done in such, at least, not perceived in such a way that God is male in the sense that the three of us are male right. um, from a biological standpoint. But feminine language for God was not something that yeah. was a part of my growing up. No, I I don't recall having it and uh Father God was certainly the most dominant <laughs> you know, metaphor yeah. that that I heard, prayed, uh and understood. And you know, a lot of that um I remember sermons that that uh I heard from my father on how uh you he didn't word it this way, but God is a father, but unlike any father you've ever known. So there right, was certainly yeah. this, an understanding that, um, my, you know, humans relationships with their own fathers may be problematic and, and just simply importing that word and, and projecting onto God may be really difficult for people. And so there was a lot of like trying to deconstruct and reconstruct, fatherhood from from what we see of God in the scriptures, not from what we experience here necessarily in our earthly relationships. So there was at least a recognition that this could be a problematic metaphor, but there but it I don't recall any feminine language for God that I can think of. Yeah, and, and digging into that idea of what Jesus, the term Jesus used there, Abba, uh, it's kind of interesting when you dig into that a little bit because um, it's not just like a direct like the 
translation typically wouldn't be understood to be called just father. It would it would be more of a intimate term, like mm-hmm. intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and one one could look at that idea and say, well, it wasn't just that he was calling God Father; it was actually more speaking to the relationship that Jesus had, the closeness sure. that Jesus had, the personal relationship that Jesus had with God, using that term Abba, Abba. And and the word father, I mean, I, I do think, like, when you think about it, like, I never called my dad father, father. Yeah. You know, there, there is an authoritarian... Is a joke. Yeah, <laughs> right, they, <yeah>. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Father, may I? Um, mm-hmm. So this idea that, uh, you know, maybe even when Jesus was referring to that term that it had different connotations than maybe we would understand the term father as. And so I think that can help us even expand our understanding of God as father and what God, Jesus meant when he used that term, right? Um, and yeah, and so, I, I mean, I see resistance to this. It's kind of interesting. I, you know, as I, as I started to look, I, 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 I realized that, you know, some of the resistance are, well, you know, all right, well, God came as a man, so God must be a man. That was one of the terms I, I've heard people tell me that, where they go, well, why did God come as a man as Jesus? We all know Jesus was a dude, so God must be a dude too, right? <laughs> you go, okay, all right. Um, but I hear most people, the, the biggest resistance I get to this is, okay, well, if you want to use that language, but I like the other language, are you going to take the language I like to use away? And I want to be clear that that's not what I would would advocate for. I think um, we as Christians need to expand our language, not take away. Uh, sure, if you like you calling God Father, go for it. If that works for you, if that works for your spirituality, if that works for your prayer life, great. As long as you're not actively telling people that they can't use a further a further language to describe God, right? It's when you start telling people what kind of language they can and cannot use uh, and and uh, and saying, hey, this is the only way of which you can see God. And I think that's where it starts to starts to be a problem. And you all think that's true? I, well, I think you know one of the th- these are images, right? right. These are exactly. images for. God, they're descriptors about who God is and how God acts. Even in in your Isaiah forty six passage, it's interesting. Yep. Um, who have borne me from my, your birth, carried yeah. from the womb, even to your old age, I am He. he right. So, right. so yeah. it's these at some level mixed images of right. a female image. Obviously, it's the female that carries someone in birth. But then it's I am he. So it's it's both the male and the female image yep. in the same breath, if you yep. will, of that, yep. that passage, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so at some level you could say both male and female images, at least as we understand them, yep. uh, as we compare them to our male and female images, uh, they both fall short, right? Yep. They're, yep. they're incomplete. Um, and to me that's the... You know, that when he, that's what needs to be lifted up is that that these what we consider male and female images give us a fuller picture of who God is. It's not right. as if somehow we're right. taking away the fatherness of God, but maybe lifting up the motherness of God as right. well. The, right. uh, the the best of what it is to be male, the best of what it is to be female, and yet. There's there's not an image out there that that fully encapsulates who God is, um, and so to be threatened by that, 
it, uh, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but you know, it kind of displays a uh, a limited understanding of who God is. That so we've got to box God in. We've got to know yep. well. God is only Father. Right. Well, if, you know, I, I think God is bigger than just Father. God, God has fatherly tendencies and motherly tendencies, and that's right. okay. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge our language, our limitations on language. I mean, we have to acknowledge we are the created, we're not the creator, and we're never going to get a full sense. And if we acknowledge that, then I think that frees us up to then use more expressive language to describe God, because we understand that God is much bigger than our own imagination. And speaking to that point, um, I know this is a podcast called The Bad Calvinists, but I have the best Calvin quote <laughs> on this. Nerd, shame, shame. Nerd. <laughs> We're supposed to be um, bad Calvinists, not good bad Calvinists. Calvinists. I know, I know. But, you know, occasionally, and I don't know how you, if you guys ever go to the Institutes or, or to Calvin's commentaries, but if I'm struggling with a passage, there are times in which I will go to Calvin's commentaries and see just just what was his take on it. And, and sometimes yep. that has been very helpful. Um, you know, obviously he's speaking from a very particular point of view at a very particular time. But his sometimes his his uh, his commentaries are very helpful. And this is one, and this is on one of the passages that I just read, forty six three. Uh, and he's 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 uh, he's waxing on here, and he says, "If it be objected that God is everywhere called a father, and he references Jeremiah Malachi, and that this title is more appropriate to him, I reply <laughs> that no figures of speech can describe God's extraordinary affection for us, for it is infinite and various, so that." If all that can be said or imagined about love were brought together into one, yet it would be surpassed by the greatness of the love of God. By no metaphor, therefore, can his incomparable goodness be described. And I love that. And and, and he said, and then going a little further down, he says, and that God who has manifested himself to be mo- both their father and their mother will always assist them, and likewise they will have known his power by in, an uninterrupted experience, so they ought not to pay homage to idols. And so even Calvin here is clear, like, hey, expand your language. It's okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this right. is a guy who was in a very different society in yeah. which the, the value of women was considerably lower uh, than we understand today, especially mothers. Yeah, I think, you know, we've... we've been saying this right it's it's the recognition that all language is inadequate right there's 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 no metaphor there's no name there's no title uh that we can place upon god the word god itself i think we can probably all agree is woefully inadequate woefully it's it's almost it almost feels like a useless word at this point uh because it's it's uh yeah it's it's so overused and so uh seemingly uh not well understood and so all, all language, no matter what it is, is, is going to fall short. And yet, as, as a good uh, Bardian, uh, it's all completely inadequate, and yet God makes it adequate, makes it too, right? right? So right, like, exactly. um, it's, it's the recognition that, that uh, 
Uh, we're never going to be able to master this. This is not about finding the, the right word that allows us to have the perfect understanding because that's not possible, right. either in our finitude, much less our, our sinfulness. Right, right. Um, and so, but I think there's, there's a fear, you know, and, and many of us have been in one form or another taught to be afraid of God, you know, and, yeah. and, and wanting to get it right. You know, we, there's a, an insecurity in wanting to make sure that we're getting our relationship with God right. And that certainly comes down to our language as well. Um, but yeah, that's why we have, to, there aren't many. I'm so grateful for the few instances we do have, like this one here in, in Isaiah that allows us to maybe have a little more courage and go, well, what if this metaphor is adequate as well? And yeah. and like any other, this one will also be limited, but that's okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's what I wanted to get at here is that it is present within Scripture. So just as we were talking about Isaiah, uh, if you go and look at the term ruach in Hebrew, which means yeah. spirit, uh, the Spirit of God that hovered over the waters at Genesis 1, right, before creation started, uh, that is a feminine word. And, and I, I want us to be clear here. All Hebrew words had gender. And Greek, okay? yep. And Greek, too. There were no gender-free nouns. And I think that's one thing that people have a hard time with because in English we have a lot of gender-free <laughs> language, right? Not like... Hebrew and Greek, and so everything had to be gendered. When you're reading Hebrew, like, every word has a gender. And so that really kind of limits the expression even within the Hebrew scriptures. You have to understand that things had to be attached to that. So there's a, there's an issue there, right? So, But even the beginning in Genesis, ruah, spirit, is feminine. So we already have a feminine, feminine noun attached to God. That exists. Then you go even a little further, and well, and then you go a little further. Even Genesis, right? God creates humanity, both male and female, and so we acknowledge that even there at the very beginning of Scripture, that exists within God both masculine and feminine qualities, um, and so that's important. I just think that it's there. It's like we ignore it. We've always ignored it for some reason. It's bizarre to me that we've ignored it. And then you even go to Proverbs, right? So you look at Proverbs and the idea of wisdom, Sophia in, in the Greek. Uh, wisdom in, in the Hebrew is, uh, I looked this up, hakma, hakma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that is a feminine term. And, and, and wisdom of God is calling out to the people, calling out, yep. follow what, me, follow which me. Which is why Proverbs, even then, besides using that word wisdom, personifies wisdom as a woman in the book of Proverbs. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, yeah, so so we we realize that even within the Hebrew scriptures, this understanding of the feminine side of God exists, right? So, like we ignore it, we have we have not studied it well, obviously, uh, because I I wonder how many of our parishioners would even know that these qualities exist, uh, even within some of our oldest scriptures that we have. And, well, there's and certainly so I, been. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, so I imagine uh, I imagine some of our listeners have tuned out right by this point, just because of this topic is so like out of their comfort zone. But for sure. if there are listeners that that this idea is out of your comfort zone, you know, a question that I uh, I, I this parishioner who likes to um, I, I swear it's a couple times a year asks me the question: Well, do you think Jesus was ever married? Hmm. And, and I, I mean, there's there's no scriptural evidence that he was. 
it's it doesn't rock my faith in any way, shape, or form whether Jesus was married or not, right? right. And so, so it's the question: what's at stake? Yeah. So it's right. it's a question to ask about the what's at stake if we read these scriptures and see these feminine images for God. Right. Does that change our faith? Right. Does that change? Uh, in a negative way, I'll say, our understanding of who God is? Or does it not change our faith? Does it not get, is it not a negative, but maybe it's a positive, right? right. I, I think it, it's a good question to ask, not just about this topic, but, but about other topics, uh, you know, controversial things or, or, or things in the Bible that are hard to understand. You know, what's it say? It's, it's the same thing with Noah's Ark, did it happen right. exactly as the story in the Bible talks about it, right. Right. or was it more of a metaphorical telling, uh, a parable, if you will? Right. And 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 so you know, for some people, that that rocks at the core. The whole of their thing faith. falls apart. The yeah. whole thing falls apart. And so, it's, well, what's at stake? What's at stake if Noah's Ark didn't happen with a big, huge ship and da da da? All the details of that. Do we not yet still learn that that? Being faithful to God is an important thing, and that's why, right. why Noah and, and his family were spared, because of their faithfulness and their, their willingness right. to listen to the Lord. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, I think you're right, Joel. For some people, the whole thing does fall apart. Uh, I don't think it has to. No, you know? it doesn't It doesn't have to. Um, but I think a lot of it's how, how something like that is, is approached. How something like that is talked about with people. I mean, I still remember freshman year, sophomore year of college, and my Old Testament professor started talking about these Old Testament stories maybe being more in the in line with a parable, with a story than an actual historical event. And I mean, heart palpitations, and, and my gosh, my my faith is, you know, everything I built my faith upon is falling down. And then you just, yeah, I mean, we, we you still the, the crossing of the Red Sea, and you still right. learn a lot about. Right. How God protects God's people, whether or not the story actually takes place exactly as the Bible tells it to. So, and certainly the New Testament's filled with parables, filled yep. with with yep. stories of, of events that that historically didn't take place, and yet still have great yeah. meaning and, and learning to to come from them. And so, you know, for our listeners that are saying, "Man, what are these guys talking about? <laughs> What's at stake? What's at stake yep. if we have a feminine imagery for God?" And, and 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 what what um, deficit does that bring to our faith? Versus maybe what what does it add to our faith? Add to our understanding of who God is. Yeah, and I you know I I like that question very much, Jason. What's at stake? I, I'd also then ask, um, be willing to ask the question: If this is something I'm really uncomfortable, why? Yeah. What what about? referring to God as mother makes you uncomfortable. Right. Is is it because, and these are just genuine questions, <laughs> is it because that somehow uh, womanhood uh, and, and God are, that, that, that God uh, and womanhood, these are, these are some, that being a woman is somehow inherently inadequate and or demeaning to God. Mm. That, that to describe God in feminine terms is to inherently demean God. If you have that sense, why? What about the feminine is somehow inherently inadequate? And I think, I'll just speak from my experience growing up as a, a, a male in this culture. You know, if I'm out on the baseball field as a kid and you see someone throw another boy throw the ball poorly, what do you say? You throw like a 
They're like a girl. Yep. Because being a girl, we that for a, for a young boy, oftentimes, certainly when I was growing up, and and I'd like to think it's better now, but I'm not sure that it is. What's the worst thing you could say to a young man? You're acting like a woman. Yeah. Why is that so threatening? Because to because being a woman is inadequate, right? It's inherently inferior. We may not verbalize it that way. We may not quite uh, uh, frame it that way because we've probably been taught, well, the sexes are equal, but then what's so bad about running like a girl or throwing like a girl or, or cry? Don't cry, right? Uh, yeah. Because you're a man. Well, there is so much uh, in our understanding of masculinity that instead of being like a robust definition, this is what we think masculinity is. It's been defined in contrast to, well, we're not women. Whatever, whatever it means to be a man, it means I'm not a woman. <laughs> and if we take that same kind of... Uh, uh, logic and, and throw it up on God, uh, maybe that's why feminine imagery around God can be so threatening. Um, but if we're able to go, you know what? Actually, being a woman is, is a wonderful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, being a woman in this world is a wonderful God-given blessing uh, that, that is both adequate for <laughs> life in this world and an adequate metaphor to describe God. Uh, so be be willing to ask yourself what 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 about this makes me uncomfortable, and is there something underlying my view of of women that needs to be questioned and and sanctified? And I would imagine for some people it's just that they've never um, never heard these images yep. before, and so there's a natural yep. you know resistance, unfamiliar, unfamiliar yep. you know, and maybe there you know as you're suggesting maybe there is something deeper seated within within someone that rejects those images. So. Um, you know, Gray, I think you, you just kind of circle back to where you started, or at least one of your opening comments, that um, you know, suggesting these feminine images for God does not mean we have to eliminate the male images for God. And I wonder if that's a, a part of the resistance on some people's behalf. Uh, um, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be that one. One's not exclusionary to, to the other. So. Exactly. And I think that's important. I mean, I think if we truly believe that God created us both male and female, that we both have value. Created um, us in the image of God, Both right? of us created in the image of God, right? And so if that, we're yeah. ready to acknowledge that, then I think we can be ready to acknowledge both God as father uh, and mother and, and, and use that language. And I, I do think that some of the resistance is that it is, as Joel said earlier, it's kind of ingrained in how we understand masculinity, femininity, uh, and traditionally in church, we only use that type of language. But I think we need to give ourselves permission. And Joel is speaking to that much bigger point, that if we give ourselves permission to use these expressive terms of God as mother and as father together, we're actually then raising up women in general to say, no, yes, they are made in God's image, they do have value, you know, and, and I think that's the that's the kind of insidious part of only using male dominant language when we're referring to God. If a woman is to be in worship and only hears those types of terms, what are, what are you to think? Yeah, somehow this this <laughs> my 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 gender is inadequate, right? Because right. the most powerful being in the universe has apparently doesn't use mine. Um, right. Apparently the 
God, God, the universe has a penis. I mean, I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Like, and it's like, oh no, like we need to expand it because God isn't just for men. God isn't just for women. God is for all of us, right? Um, and I, I think that's that's what's at stake here. And I think that's what when you you ask that question, Jason, like, what do we have to lose? What do we have to gain by using? this mixed metaphor language that is in scripture that is faithful to the witness that we have received from scripture um and i just i just think that we need to be better about allowing that language to happen this isn't about gendering god it's not about seeing god as one or the other but expanding our hearts in our minds, I think, to experience God in a new way. And that's important going forward. If we're going to live an authentic life, I think we need to live in to this type of language for God. And I think one of the other things, I cut you off this time again. (laughs) Joel, you go. You go. Okay, thank you. Well, Gray, you mentioned earlier, you know, spirit as as feminine in both the the New Testament and the Old Testament. And of course, Uh, we probably all remember the great prophet Bono, who told us that, you know, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. right she moves exactly. in mysterious ways. She moves and, in mysterious ways. And if you listen close to that song, it is about the Holy Spirit, actually, right. or at least it's meant right. to be a, a dual metaphor within that song. By the end, he's saying, Spirit, move me. Uh, and Bono, being a good biblical scholar, knows knows that. Uh, there's also been a really creative reflection on Christ as mother throughout church history mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Uh, which is just... Um, it, it's helpful for me to know, like, we're not the first person to think these thoughts. Yeah. Uh, this is this is not some contemporary uh, faddish thing of like, look at me, be transgressive, and think about Jesus through feminine lenses. But uh, in the Middle Ages, there was all kinds of extraordinary oh, yeah. art, some that we might find quite scandalous of Jesus is giving birth to uh, the church through his the wound in his side uh, from John's account of the crucifixion. But one that I found always really cool is uh, Julian of Norwich, who yes. loved to refer to to uh, Christ as as mother. And so, you know, Julian has these extraordinary ecstatic experiences of of God, uh, and then spends years reflecting upon them. And in her prayerful reflection, she mostly identifies uh, God. Uh, the creator with with fatherhood, but then she really starts connecting Christ uh, with this image of mother. This is she writes. I realize that the second person of the Trinity is really our mother. This beloved being works with us as a parent here on earth. Our mother keeps all our parts together and works on us in various ways. We profit and grow in Christ the Mother. Through her mercy, she restores and redeems us. Through his passion, his dying, and resurrecting, he makes us one with his own essence. Mm. And so the mother acts with mercy toward all of her loving children. It goes on a great length, but, you know, Julian of Norwich is, what, 1200s in England? Uh, and, and may have been illiterate herself. Um, and, and yet, you know, through this prayerful encounter with God, uh, experiences uh, Christ as, as the source of motherhood. And so it's just helpful to know you're not the first person to think this. Uh, this has been part of church history for for a long time. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of ways at which we can look at Christ's stories and some of his teachings uh, and see the maternal language that's used in. And I, I quote in my sermon here that I preached on this um, about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, um, mm-hmm. and and says, you know, you have to be born again <laughs> in order 
to follow me, right? And and so it's so this idea of born again. I mean, that's a maternal quality. Like who yep. who's how is he being born again? Like being born through God. Like we're talking about maternal qualities. And then even going back to what Joel just mentioned, Julia Norwich, she even contextualized communion um, as this understanding of um, as maternal qualities to it. When Jesus says, "This is my body broken yep. for you." Uh, that Jesus is feeding us from his body just as a mother would a feeding infant, uh, a newborn. Um, and so understanding that, um, that there are maternal qualities just as there are fatherly qualities um, in how Jesus understood God. And I, I just encourage people to look for it. Like I said earlier, it's there. You just need to look for it. Um, and then, and then go. Okay, so what if it's there? Then what does that mean for how I talk about God? What does that mean for my prayer life? What does that mean for my inclusion of women uh, in my life and all levels of my life? Um, and I really think it could help us get, I think, closer to what we see in Genesis. As I said earlier, that men and women were created in the image of God. And I think, again, I'm, I'm thinking about our listeners who this is something they've never thought of before, never heard of before, and how we as pastors uh, have a responsibility to, to at one level, bring up these passages and, and share these passages, but to do so in a way that, that does not become uh, scary or, or, or shocking or or a, a negative experience for people within our church, right? So, exactly. uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, how to present these in such a way that is truthful to the story, truthful to the fact that we have these biblical passages, mm-hmm. um, but also doing so in a way that doesn't turn people away from that. So I preached just recently here from the book of Second John, one of these three letters at the last uh, mm-hmm. couple books of the Bible, and the the letter of Second John, we don't really know. We're not the scholars aren't sure who wrote it, and they're not sure who it was written to. It, right. it seems to be written in some kind of code, and maybe that's to protect the person who is it, it was being written to. Um, we, we just don't know, you know. And so that in and of itself could could kind of rock and shake somebody's faith. Well, what what do you mean we don't know? This is God's word to us. Right. Well. Yes, I, I don't disagree God's word to us, and we could banter around what exactly that means. Um, but what I said, what you know, kind of openly said that scholars aren't sure who wrote it, scholars aren't sure who it was written to. Even that, even saying that, it doesn't mean it's a worthless letter. Yep. No. Uh, we can still learn from that letter, right? So, so as much as it maybe shock, shakes and rocks of faith that we don't know who wrote the letter of Second John. That's okay. Let's admit it. Let's right. let's acknowledge it, uh, and let's still learn from the letter. Maybe it rocks and shakes your faith that there are feminine images for God. Okay, let's let's hold on to that. But then let's take the next step and say, what what can we learn from this? How can our faith not be be rocked and shaken? But how can our faith be strengthened? How can our understanding of God be strengthened by this? But I think that's a a, a critical part for us as pastors of local churches yeah. to to help our people not just to not just to smack them in the face with 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 whatever it is shocking people. Yeah, yeah we don't right. need we're to not be provocative. We're not, provocative. We're not shock jocks yeah. up on the yeah. pulpit, right? Um, <laughs> 
you know, to, to be provocative in, in the best possible ways, to, to be, right. um, you know, to shake people out of uh, sedentary faith into mm-hmm. an alive and, and growing faith. And, um, but I think that needs to be handled with care sometimes, you know. Um, it does. And I think, you know, a lot of that speaks to obviously knowing your congregation, knowing what they, what they need and, and what they're ready for. And um, I, I want to tease a little bit more what, what Gray brought up about communion, because I, I think, you know, Jason, you just said, how can this help us? Well, if we think of communion specifically through this lens of uh, Christ saying to the disciples, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you, and then thinking through every mother who has ever given birth mm-hmm. has said that to her child yep. by her actions, right? There, there is, there's no birth that, that has ever taken place in the history of our world where a body was not in some form broken and blood was not shed as a nonviolent act of love to bring forth life into this world. Right. Well, we've done podcasts in the past on rethinking the cross, atonement theories, and how like a lot of people today have a real problem of, of looking at uh, Christ on the cross and seeing that as anything resembling good news, especially if we think of it as the Father punishing the Son or Christ taking God's punishment from us so that we can finally be forgiven. Uh, that may be a really problematic way to look at the cross for a lot of folks. Well, how about this metaphor then, right? In- instead of, I'm taking punishment that you deserve so that you can be forgiven, we look at it through this, every mother uh, has has had their body broken and blood shed, uh, and, and Christ going nonviolently to the cross and saying, I'm going to receive this uh, into my body and send back blessing for you, and somehow this is going to give birth to a new people. Um, maybe that's a, a healing metaphor for you as, as you approach the cross. So let's conclude with um, a passage from a report that it turned out to be a very controversial report that the PCUSA put out in 2006 called The Trinity, God's Love Overflowing. And it, it turned out to be controversial because they, they suggested a bunch of different uh, language for how we can describe the Trinity. And I think most people just thought it was cringe, which was why... Uh, <laughs> People, people got mad about it, you know, using language like, instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Son, Light, and Burning Ray, Speaker, Word, and Breath, you know, stuff like that, Fire that Consumes, Sword that Divides, Storm that Melts Mountains. That's pretty exciting. I kind of love that. It's fun. <laughs> so there, were, there was a lot of people that, that had big thoughts and big emotions around suggesting that we use different terms uh, for the Trinity, which really goes back to the conversation we just had, right? But they did, a, they did a really nice job, I think, in their report, and I encourage you to go and read it. You can find it online, as I said earlier, the Trinity, God's Overflowing Love. It was uh, recommended to the 217th General Assembly in 2006. And they had a wonderful rationale in here, and I'm, I want to speak, I want to end with this, this language. We should not insist on exclusive use of the, Trinitar- the traditional Trinitarian names lest we quench the spirit and foster idolatry. Such a view would insufficiently acknowledge the divine mystery and would neglect the freedom of God's children to glorify God imaginatively with all of our hearts and minds and would diminish 
the joy of knowing God more fully. And I think that's what's at stake. When, we, when you ask that question, Jason, what do we have to lose or what do we have to gain by using this language? I think what we have to gain is true joy, is true imagination of opening our minds to a God that is so much bigger and so much more loving than we could possibly ever imagine. So I thank you all for joining us today. God bless you all. We look forward to This is our second to last episode. We're going to have one more coming out after this to finish season three of The Bad Calvinists. We thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.